Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. And it's my pleasure to welcome you and to introduce our speaker today at the 107th annual meeting of the City Club of Cleveland. Our speaker is the co-founder and president of Report for America, Steve Waldman. The City Club, a citadel of free speech for more than a century, has a special affinity for the First Amendment, which protects, among other things, a free press. That local journalism faces challenges in our increasingly digital world is old news, to be sure. See what I did there? Um, it's not uncommon to hear about the closing of another often local newspaper or see journalists on social media announcing a new job search after a layoff. And yet, the consequences are very real. Without journalists and newspapers, many smaller cities and towns are left without a way to obtain the information they need to understand the critical issues facing their community or to hold public officials accountable. And so it's appropriate that today we're kicking off a series called Reimagining Journalism. We'll feature the people and initiatives rethinking the way we structure, model, and fund the journalism of the future. Today's speaker is co-founder and president of Report for America, sort of AmeriCorps for journalists, which supports local news outlets by placing journalists to work in, on undercovered issues in under-resourced communities. Their goal is to place 1,000 journalists in newspaper, radio, TV, and digital outlets across the country by 2022. So how's it working? Are the efforts rebuilding trust in local news? Today we'll find out. Steve Waldman is, as I said, Report for America's co-founder. He crafted the plan for the organization after writing the, writing the groundbreaking report, Information Needs of Communities for the Federal Communications Commission, which was described by National Public Radio as, quote, one of the most comprehensive overviews of the US media ever produced. An accomplished journalist, entrepreneur, and editor, Mr. Waldman served as the editor of US News and World Report and a national correspondent for Newsweek before co-founding beliefnet.com, an award-winning multi-faith religion website, and lifepost.com, a platform for online memorials. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to our 2019 annual meeting, Mr. Steve Waldman. Thank you so much. This is a, a real honor, and I'm so thrilled that you're giving so much attention to this topic. Uh, and Dan really knows how to put speakers at ease by showing them pictures of the previous speakers. Uh, nothing, makes, nothing makes you calmer as a speaker to see that you're preceded by Rosa Parks and <laughs> Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, Robert Kennedy. No pressure. Um, so I want to talk about journalism today, but I actually really want to talk about communities and, and what the connection is, um, and community health. Well, talking about economics, let's start with that. You all know, uh, being in Northeast Ohio, what happens when an industry collapses. You've lived the consequences in this region of what happened with the decline of steel and manufacturing and coal, and you know, it starts with the loss of jobs, but it ripples. And there's lost tax revenue. There's deep effects on families. Uh, there's addiction rises. The support for city and city services erodes. Communities fray 
as a result. You, you feel the ripple effects throughout. Now, you've been dealing with this for a long time. It also shows you also see the ways that communities respond uh, in healthy ways and try new ways. But you know the, the impacts and the kind of ways that uh, the collapse of an industry can ripple out through communities. And the collapse of the manufacturing sector is amazing and ha how big it has been. Uh, you probably know all this, but from 1980 to 2018, the number of jobs in steel and manufacturing dropped 54%. So an entire industry was cut in half in two decades, 54%. The loss of journalism jobs in that period has been 65%. So the, the collapse of local journalism in percentage terms and in raw terms is on the scale, or actually even in raw numbers, even larger than the collapse of the steel industry. Now, the impacts and the way this ripples through America is very different. Um, you know, it's, it's more diffuse. But it's, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing to contemplate. And you, Jefferson, you've probably heard this quote, but said, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. So you have this institution that is at the heart of democracy that has shrunk in half, more than half. And yet there's also something wrong with this picture that if you talk to most people, most regular people who aren't following this and you say, oh yeah, there's been a collapse of journalism, they're like, what are you talking about? I, I am inundated with news all the time. Information everywhere. It's in my phone and my bathroom and now the refrigerator is smart and it has <laughs> news, it's pumping news at me and it's like, there's no shortage of news. News is, news is everywhere. And that's kind of true. Like at the same point that newspapers collapsing, the, the amount of hours that local TV news were, were spending on news was, was growing. So there's, there's an abundance of stuff out there, of, of news and information. So we, we need to get really more precise um, about what is actually happening. It's not actually a shortage of news. It's a, shorter, it's a shortage of reporting. And even to be more precise than that, it's a shortage of local reporting. And to be even more precise than that, it's a shortage of local accountability reporting. That's where the heart of the crisis is, especially as it affects um, communities. Um, there's this phrase that is common in our, in our business that you may not have heard before called news deserts. Have you ever, has that phrase ever come across your way? So that is a new term, which is, it's not, you know, we always used to talk about, oh, the, the news is, is not doing a good enough job, it's not deep enough, it's, it's biased, there's all sorts of problems we've been talking about with journalism for a long time. News desert is a whole other thing. That's like, there's nothing there. There's no news, there, or, there, or the news is so empty that it is like the, like the community is in a news desert. There is no one covering what's going on there. Almost 1,800 newspapers have folded or merged since 2004. There are more than 1,300 communities uh, that now have no news coverage. Um, one of the most important uh, collapses in recent memory is the, is the uh, the shutting of the Vindicator in Youngstown, Ohio, and we're very, very honored to have as uh, a, a 
new leader of Report for America, Todd Franco, um, who was the, um, the editor of The Vindicator, and he is now uh, taken on as a new cause, working with us as our director of local development and sustainability to try to help reimagine local news. In Ohio, there's been a 39% decline in the number of news organizations since 2004, a 51% drop in circulation. So that gives you a sense of scale of just how dramatic this is. 138 newspapers have closed in Ohio in, uh, since 2004, which, by the way, is actually about par for the course for the rest of the, the country. Now, there was always an issue. When I wrote the report for the FCC, the, 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 as a writing matter, one of the hardest things to get at is like proving a negative of like, how do you know that there's actually an impact from something that's not happening anymore? So there's not someone covering schools. Like, how do you know that that matters? Um, and it's, it's a little bit of a tricky thing. The example we always used to like to give that because it was so concrete was Bell, California, where there was, this is a community in California. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, there was no one covering the community. And it turned out later they found out that the, uh, the city manager was paying himself $787,000 and the police chief was paying himself $457,000. These are all things that, like, this wasn't done through secret embezzlement. The city council was passing this, but there was no reporter at the city council. So this just happened for year after year. This is like a great concrete example of a, like, what you don't know might be happening. Um, I can't guarantee that that's happening in every community, but you can be pretty sure something is happening. And we went around and interviewed, when we were doing this report, we interviewed editors to try to get at this question of like, well, you know, you're still doing a lot of stuff. What are you not doing? And I remember very vividly the editor, I think he was the editor of the Tennessean in Nashville, just took me to his room and showed me a whiteboard. And it had all these story ideas, incredibly important looking stories. And one of them said, Failure of state board that regula regulates incompetent doctors. That was a story idea he had on there. Like, that sounds important. <laughs> he said, we're not going to do that one. We don't have the resources to do that one. That did, so it didn't get done. That's, that, that's the kind of thing that, you know, that, that happens when you don't have labor. and It's someone to do labor-intensive stories. Um, and we also would hear it from, from in the testimony of non-journalists. I remember talking to a guy in, in Michigan who was not a journalist. He was a juvenile court expert. Um, and he just said coverage of juvenile courts in Michigan has gotten smaller and smaller over the years. Uh, to the, and I said, well, you know, why does that matter? Tell me why that matters. He says, oh, well, parents whose rights are terminated that shouldn't be terminated. Just take somebody to go down there to get the story, but no one's ever down there. So it gives you a sense of what, you know, how this translates into real life impact. Uh, and we have seen with Report for America, which I'll talk about in, in detail, when we start to place reporters into communities that haven't had reporting in a while, what they come up with is really very dramatic. We, in our, our first reporter in our first week was a reporter named Will Wright, in, who was put in eastern Kentucky in a few counties that hadn't had good coverage there. And he just started going to community meetings and discovered that the people who had been complaining there for about two years about how they don't have running drinking water. Now, I'm in New York City. Like, if, it, if we went an hour without having running drinking water, there'd be riots. But this has been going on for weeks and intermittently for, for a couple of years. 
And it's not like the people in the community haven't been complaining about it, but no one was listening. And he went, and this was, not, this was his first week. This was not a big year-long investigative series. He showed up at the meeting and started writing about how they didn't have running drinking water. And he did a series of stories, and it started to get the attention in the legislature, and it steamrolled. And within a few months, the legislature had allocated $5 million to try to r repair the water system in these, in these uh, two counties. Um, I'll give another example that's like, in one way it's really small, but there's something about it that makes it really, really concrete. And we have a reporter in Salt Lake City, or he's working for the Salt Lake Tribune now, covering San Juan County, which is, I, th I think, the poorest county in Utah, Zach Podmore. And he, you know, no, the, co the county really had not been covered very much, so he was finding it relatively easy to find interesting stories, and one of the things he found was that the county had been double-billed by a lobbying firm, 109000 so he just did a story, and the county got $109,000 back. And what it, what's interesting to me about that, that's not $5 million or billions of dollars, but 109000 is probably more than twice Zach's salary. So with one story, he earned back for the community, you know, twice his annual salary, just, you know, if you're, if you're economics-minded person, it's sort of an interesting way of looking at it. And you can just see it in the other things, other stories that, Emil, that people are doing. Amelia, uh, Amelia Nicely is, our, uh, is a reporter that we have in the in Cincinnati Inquirer covering northern Kentucky. And just like a couple, that I'll just read you a few of the headlines that give you a sense of the range. That's both accountability and just the nature of a community. Um, headline, he died of an overdose while in police custody. His family wonders if he could have been saved. Um, how safe is your pool? We checked the health reports to see. Um, these northern Kentucky residents can't get mail delivered to their houses. Uh, what role did Mitch McConnell have in building this tiny airport? Um, and those are the kind of, those are the drearier ones. There are also ones that are about uh, just community, about, you know, constructive efforts to solve things. And these are all stories that just would not have been done without Amelia being there. So let's, but those are all anecdotes. Like, um, we all, in the journalism field, we all start with a kind of a, you know, we kind of assume what we do is important, um, maybe erroneously. Uh, but fortunately, actual academics have now started to study whether that's true. And looking at what happens in communities when journalism shrivels up. So there has, and the bad news about journalism shriveling up is that journalism shriveled up. The good news is it makes for very good academic studies. Um, so they can now have a good before and after uh, set of what, what happens in a community based on the journalism. And it's pretty amazing. There's a study, one, one group of scholars at University of Chicago studied communities from 1869 through 2004 to look at what happens when newspapers came in and closed. And they showed very definitively that it is correlated with lower voter turnout. When, when news goes down, voter turnout goes down. When there's a healthier news environment, there is more civic engagement. It actually, a different study even found it affected the number of people who ran for public office and the number of people who actually got involved in their community. Civic engagement in general goes up when there is a healthy media environment. Um, another very creative study from some folks at Notre Dame actually proved that when 
newspapers go away or good journalism goes away, bond prices go up. It's a very interesting, clever approach. And they basically, they looked at it and they basically said, like, when there's no accountability, the, the bond markets start to assume that the quality of the city government is worse and that there's more waste and maybe taxes actually go up, they speculated, because there's more waste. And, um, you know, it's very, it was a very creative way of getting at what I think, you know, is sort of intuitively um, makes sense, that if you have a community, if you look at Bell, California, like, you're not going to buy municipal bonds in Bell, California. Um, it affects economic development. It affects the ability of communities to solve problems, because if people don't know what the problems are or have an accurate understanding what the pro uh, and what the problems are, don't understand what groups there are that are trying to solve them and what the key decision points are, it's very hard to get people in, involved. Another more subtle effect on the community level, I think, is, is a power shift. And what I mean by that is um, when you don't have independent journalists looking for stories based on what they're hearing from the community, the story agendas tend to be set by the people in power, the mayor or the, or, or the leaders of different institutions. The people in public office often will complain about how they don't like having less coverage, and on some level I'm sure that's true. But the truth is they're in a position where they can much better set the, the agenda of what stories are, are being talked about than they used to be. There was a study by the Pew Research Center of Baltimore. They looked at the collapse of the Baltimore Sun and they basically um, said, quote, as news is posted faster, often with little enterprise reporting added, the official version of events is becoming more important. We found official press releases often appear word for word in first accounts of events, though often not noted as such. Government, at least in this study, initiates most of the news. 63% of the stories were initiated by government of the ones that they studied in Baltimore. Another effect that may seem a little surprising, but when you think about it, it makes sense, is that it actually leads to more polarization. That the decline of local media, I'm not talking about national media, the decline of probably, that probably cuts in the opposite direction. The local media, the decline of local media leads to more polarization. There was a study um, that, that demonstrated this. And uh, you know, it's, why, why would that be? For one thing is that the collapse, the vacuum that is created by local news has been filled by national cable and national political news, which is more, more polarized. But there's also, there's less discussion. You know, a lot of times local issues, they may be controversial, but they don't necessarily fall along the normal fault lines of uh, national politics. You know, whether there's, you know, traffic lights in a certain area may be a controversial topic, but it doesn't necessarily follow along Republican and uh, Democratic lines. Uh, so all of this is by way of saying that, you know, we, we, in some ways, we're not about reinvent, you know, improving journalism. We're about helping strengthen communities. The point of this program is that democracy and community health cannot uh, thrive without a healthy media. This is not a jobs program for journalists. It's a way of helping to reestablish journalism as a public service. And, and I describe this program as a national service program for journalism. What do we, what do we mean by that? Um, it's 
I think there's almost like two twin problems with journalism right now. One is the economic problem that we've talked about. There's also kind of almost a spiritual problem too, which is that journalists who got into the business because it was a public service career, like I don't know anyone who went into journalism for the money, um, they thought they were going to be doing good, have had that ground out of them by the economic situation. They just, they're running around doing quick stories and they don't have time to do the depth. They don't have time to do what they wanted to do. So Report for America is a way of reestablishing the idea of local reporting as public service. Uh, the beats that they do are all crafted toward uh, civically important beats. And they're also required to do a service project mostly working with local high schools to help them set up school newspapers or podcasts or things like that. And the way the program works is it's sort of two competitions, newsrooms compete with each other to have the privilege of hosting these Report for America Corps members. And then, um, and it's, by the way, it's a whole range of news organizations. Nonprofit websites, public radio stations, newspapers, nonprofit, for-profit, and, um, and then there's a, a competition among reporters. And we had 940 applicants for 50 slots in this last cycle. So the, the appetite among young reporters to do this is incredible. And the spirit of why they want to do it is amazing. They really want to go into communities around the country in order to do this kind of work that we're, that we're talking about. And uh, then we split the cost. We pay half the salary. And the local newsroom. Uh, is responsible for the other half, but we work with them to raise half of their half from the community, from philanthropically. And I believe that the reality is that for the uh, local news ecosystems to get better and where they need to be, there's going to have to be a much larger role for the nonprofit sector than there used to be. I think the sooner we face that fact, the quicker we will solve this problem that the business models are not coming back and that the commercial, the commercial media, I don't think it's going to go away. And in fact, it can't. That would be really bad. Um, but it's not going to be the level where it needs to be. And it has to be a mix of commercial and nonprofit and, and hybrids, like, like Report for America, which is kind of we're a nonprofit program, but we place people into nonprofits sometimes, for profits sometimes. Um, and even when we're placing them into for-profits, it kind of has an interesting effect on that. We had a, um, the editor of the Chicago Sun-Times, where we have two reporters, uh, was quoted in a story about Report for America saying, um, the, the two reporters there are named Manny and Carlos, and they cover the south side of Chicago, and they said, I'd love to take Manny and Carlos and just have them cover murders, but we promised Report for America that we wouldn't. So, like... And I think he said it with a twinkle on his eye, like he kind of likes that restriction on him because he can then go to his treasurer and say, hey, I'd love to do it, but you know, we promised these guys and they're giving us some money. And um, So I think he loves the fact that he's being forced to deploy his reporters into these civically important beats. So ultimately what we think happens when you have reporters on the ground like this is it leads to a greater trust. And both trust in the media, which is an important thing, um, but also trust within a community. That if you have a community understanding itself, 
you're going to be more likely for people to understand each other and be able to um, solve problems. Um, so that is the sort of the, the idea behind Report for America. We, it's founded, uh, it's, we're an initiative of another group called the Ground Truth Project, which is geared toward um, providing young journalists the opportunity to do great on the ground reporting. And the, the ambitions are, are enormous. You know, we want to have a thousand reporters in a few years, and we're trying, this is not a program to have a couple nice fellowships that, uh, you know, give a good experience to journalism. This is a program that attempts to work with existing news organizations to transform the local media ecosystems and not just fill the gaps of what was there, but to actually create something better. Because we also we all know that even in the golden age of journalism, there's plenty of problems with it. I, I and it's weird for me to even be like being a news booster because previously I was mostly a news critic. Uh, so I'm very aware of like even when things were good that they weren't always that good. So I really are we are really focused on the idea that we want to create something new and better that takes advantages of the new technology and the new ways of distributing content. Uh, but uses um, what we can learn, honestly, from the national service movement and the community service movement. The way I got the idea for this actually was a long, long time ago, early in my career, I took a little uh, sabbatical from journalism and went to work at AmeriCorps. I uh, worked for the, the head of the AmeriCorps program and then um, and wrote a book about the creation of AmeriCorps. And so I was very fortunate to just kind of become steeped in that world of Teach for America, AmeriCorps City Year, uh, youth build, all sorts of interesting programs that sprung up often in the 90s, 80s and 90s to uh, take a different approach to community service and national service. Um, and I just had these, uh, I, I kind of refer to them as acid flashbacks without the acid, um, <laughs> of, of these moments when I'd be sitting in journalism conferences hearing everyone talk about the depressing collapse of journalism and how it's all messed up and it's never coming back and what are we going to do about it and oh we got to like raise our subscription prices or have better ad salesmen or whatever and I kept thinking like I think you guys could learn something from you know city year or the people who have created community service programs on the ground they figured some things out they figured out practical things they figured out like actually how to use partnership building to be able to integrate into nooks and crannies uh, without having to build great big new institutions. And they figured out also that uh, if you have a noble aspect, if you put a noble goal out as part of what you're doing, it doesn't make you soft and less effective. It actually makes you more effective. And it makes you have the ability to attract extraordinary people. And it makes you have the ability to rally support from a community. And so for, for us, that's what kind of what Report for America comes down to is this isn't just like a way of getting a little bit of money into news organizations. This is a movement that is attempting to redefine journalism, bring back the sense of local reporting as public service, and engage the community in, the, in this project in a way that's going to make it really long-lasting and creating a better form than we've ever had before. Thank you very much. Today at the City Club, we're hearing from Steve Waldman. He's co-founder and president of Report for America. We're about to begin the Q&A with all of you. We welcome questions from everyone. 
Holding our microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and City Club intern Remy Orasanya. May we have our first question, please? Yes, a good friend of mine uh, publishes a newspaper called Profile News that is aimed at a Middle Eastern American audience. Can you talk about the importance of such uh, immigrant-run newspapers? Well, one of, the, one of the things we're finding as we get, we just got hundreds of applications from local newsrooms all across the country, and it's been a fascinating window into, into both the state of despair and also this, this, the state of creativity. And one of the things we're really understanding is that to have a healthy ecosystem, you can't just think in terms of the big metropolitan dailies or the, the, the big TV, you know, the local TV stations. You have to think in terms of weekly newspapers, ethnic newspapers, or, or publications, ethnic radio, um, as well as the new th public radio. And there's, there's many, many communities where the most important news source is either, either a weekly or an ethnic publication. And those have basically faced the same headwinds that we're talking about. In, the, in a lot of cases, it's actually worse because uh, the economics are just really punishing. So we're, we've made a really big you know, kind of emphasis this year of working, try, trying to work with ethnic press and weeklies to place Report for America people there as well. Uh, I think that's part of the way you have to think of the solution to this. This is not going to be something that gets solved by a few big newspapers getting a little bit bigger. It has to be um, very, very community-based. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I appreciated your talk very much. I have a question which is a little bit uh, off the topic a little bit. That has to do with the accuracy and the credibility of newspapers and how the decline of accuracy and credibility has led to the decline of readership of newspapers. You talked of the golden age of journalism. When I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, you had basically three ways to get the news, the newspaper, the TV, and the radio. And you knew if you wanted to get it in depth, you got it from newspapers. Then you had in the 80s cable news and the rise of the 24-hour uh, news cycle, and then the internet. And it seems to me that journalists at all levels are under a lot of pressure these days to get those stories out quickly and post them on the internet quickly, and then therefore accuracy and credibility suffers. How, how has that, uh, is that a factor, and how has that led to the decline of the, uh, of the newspaper? Well, it's this perfect storm where you, at the same time that there are fewer journalists, there's pressure to produce more and more and faster and faster. So, you know, what's wrong with that equation? It's gonna end up being more super, superficial and more inaccuracy, it just is. And the, the other thing that has happened during that time is there was a survey that came out just a couple days ago from the Knight Foundation and Gallup about pe people do actually trust local news more than national news, by a lot, actually. And one of the reasons that they say they do is that local news is better at distinguishing commentary from news, which is true, actually. You kind of know that in the newspaper. But if you turn on cable news at night, especially in the prime time thing, they're commentary shows. There's three, four hours of commentary, but they look like news people. They, they wear the same uniforms <laughs> as news people, and they're at the same desks. And it's like, most people think that's news. It's on CNN, it's on MSN, you know, that, those are commentary shows, you know, more power to them. But that's, and that I think is, is actually confusing to people. Now, one thing I'll say is that the issues with trust in the media and accuracy, even though I think they're real, are not actually the main reason why the collapse of news of the, of the business models happened. 
in fact, when you combine newspaper audience with newspaper website audience, news organizations are actually reaching more people than they did even when they were healthy. So they're still reaching a lot of people. The problem was not the loss of readers, it was the loss of advertisers. And the internet basically made it so that if you're an advertiser, you don't have to advertise in the newspaper in order to reach people. You can advertise on Facebook or Google or Craigslist, and you have a much more, frankly, sorry if there are any ad salespeople, more effective, cost-effective way of reaching your, you know, the demographic you want to reach. So that's kind of the part that knocked the guts out of the, uh, out of the business model, but it certainly doesn't help matters as we're trying to deal with this catastrophic situation that we're also dealing with a moment when trust in the media has also collapsed at the same time. Now, some of that is not you know, accuracy. There's a, the attacks on the media, which we haven't even talked about, um, are, are part of that. But I think it, you know, to flip it around and put it in positive terms, I think the best way to restore trust is to have lots of reporters on the ground doing real reporting that's accurate and being seen doing it too. Like being seen at the school board meeting, sitting at the desk till one in the morning, essentially representing the public to make sure something. I think that's, you know, is a part of the restoring of trust. Thank you. I have a question about student newspapers. And I want to give you an example of how key newspapers can be in producing civic engagement. On Monday, I was at getting some gas, and I picked up the Monday plane dealer, which is not the day that's delivered to my home. And I saw that there was a meeting about the closing of four high schools. And I wanted to propose that we keep them open and fill up the extra space with nonprofits and for-profits and so forth. So that newspaper being printed that day got me to that meeting. Now, what do you think about the possibility? You probably saw the article in the New York Times about how the Michigan Daily is still publishing daily. There's a bunch of alums of that paper right here in Cleveland, by the way. Uh, what do you think about the potential for universities in each major city to collaborate on putting out a daily student newspaper so that we have fewer one newspaper towns? Well, I love it. I, I, I'm a, a fanatical student journalism person. I, my, my first piece of journalism was for the junior high newspaper the dial covering the junior varsity football team. And I thought I'd gone to heaven, like, this is big league stuff. Um, and I worked on my junior high paper, my high school paper, my college paper. And I think in addition to it being a great experience for, you know, for the young people, um, it increasingly is a really important source of journalism. And, you know, I think of every, when we talk, we, we, I've been talking about community. You know, what's the, you're covering the, the importance of covering the community. The most important journalism outfit in the, in the community of a high school is the high school newspaper. And very often, in, 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 especially in larger college towns, uh, the school newspaper does as good a job covering the community as anything else. Now, the other element that we have in this program that I mentioned in passing that may end up connecting to that is the service requirement that Report for America has, which is definitely the only journalism program that has this requirement. And we, we ask that the core members do a service project, and it's a big ask. They like, it's a hard job to be a local reporter without you know, having an additional requirement. Uh, but, and we were a little nervous about it, like they were gonna be like, roll their eyes and think, like, it's hard enough to just do the regular job without having to do this other thing. But it's turning out to be a really popular part of the program because they're connecting, they're working with high school students 
um, hopefully to light the fire so that they go on maybe become college journalists. And, and also it helps to kind of build the pipeline of future, of future journalists. It's also good for the, for the Report for America person because they connect with the community in a different way through the actual you know, people and their parents and things like that. So it remains to be seen how the, what you were talking about, whether it'll overlap directly with it, but I think that that's a, the student journalism is a big, big part of the future somehow. A very illuminating and helpful presentation about this this whole problem, uh, and of course the fact that you're there talking about that you're here talking about all this really does point up the tremendous value of the city club itself. Yes. In this regard, I mean, when you think of all the issues, local, many local as well as as regional and national issues, that are then aired on public radio, and then as you have mentioned, public radio WCPN here is. Uh, is really critical. I mean, the, those discussions in the mornings on all kinds of issues, Mike McIntyre's daily show uh, is, is so valuable. And the student papers. Is there anything, what can be done locally, do you think, uh, to strengthen those, those particular uh, components of the, of the whole local news operation, the student, the college papers in particular, and public radio? Well, you know, in general, community media is not going to survive without the support of the community. And that the most obvious answer is subscribe to your newspaper and donate to your public radio station. We now have a new answer, additionally, which is give money to Report for America, because we will <laughs> place journalists in all of these in all of these places, I mean, our, we're essentially partnering with all these different institutions. But even if it's not us, there is this new world that has popped up really recently, like in the last 10 years, of nonprofit news organizations that, in addition to public radio, that are kind of just sprouting. And each community is a little different. Like, we're a pretty good clearinghouse at getting at them, but we're not the only one. And, and sort of keep your ears open to, uh, you know, for those kinds of organizations. I mean, I, I think the sea change that has to happen is that people like you, who I would say are the civic leaders of, of Cleveland, have to think of journalism as a civic good. In the same way you look at the schools and the museums and the parks, this didn't used to be that way. Like, it used to be a commercial thing, right? It was fine. It was a healthy commercial entity doing a thing. Yes, it was important for democracy, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that people who are, who are concerned about the health of a community had to really worry about. Now you do. Now it's a civic issue, what happens with journalism in a community. And it just, that is the, if I had to summarize in really simple terms what has to be the sea change, it's that. And if that happens, there's all sorts of ways that can, this can work out well. There's all sorts of creative vessels and ways of harnessing that, but it has to start with that. The, Alberto Ibarguan, who's the head of the Knight Foundation, one of the leaders in this world, has a line that's it's not exactly inspiring, but it's so true that I kind of repeat it. He says, journalism should be every local foundation's second most important issue. It's like, yeah, that's kind of right. It's not that it's more important than, you know, hunger or health care, whatever your primary issue is. But if you have any hope of trying to ever fix your schools or deal address with poverty or hunger in a community, good luck trying to do that if no one knows what's going on and if institutions aren't being held accountable and if citizens aren't given the information they need in order to act. 
<coughs> my question is that newspapers never use the model of the Apple computer, which captivized the students in high school and colleges. And therefore, they were used to, when they got to work, to be able to use. Newspapers, how much responsibility do newspapers have for not adapting or foreseeing the problems they're facing now? Well, I think that there's some, some part of it. But the more I kind of looked into it, the more I sort of felt like it was a tidal wave that they probably would have been drowned by anyway. But, but some examples of things that they didn't do, like Craigslist was, uh, you know, was an early uh, competitor to classifieds in, in newspapers, right? And Craigslist came along, and instead of charging $500 for an ad, they charged zero, or in some cases, $25. Uh, but they also had all sorts of elements to Craigslist that was just a better experience. There's no reason why a newspaper couldn't have invented Craigslist or a newspaper chain couldn't have invented Craigslist. Well, there is a reason that they didn't want to undercut their existing business model. So, so it's hard. It's not easy. And very, very smart people working at these institutions looked at things like that, and they would periodically run up against interesting ideas like that, and they'd say, yeah, that's probably good in the long run, but in the short run, we'd be better off sticking with with what works. Now, the reason I think that even if they had done m much smarter things, I'm not sure it would have mattered, is um, one of the most important changes in the business of news is that advertising no longer has to be next to content. And what I mean by that, my wife writes for, or used to write, she's actually a funeral direc director now, but she used to write um, for, for uh, women's magazines. It's not a sign of the death of women's magazines <laughs> that she became a funeral director. Um, but you know, the economics of a women's magazine is if you're an advertiser that is trying to reach women back then, you say, oh, we'll advertise in a magazine that is read by women ages 25 to 40. You know, so content, proximity to content was the way that advertisers reached people. And that was like the iron law of all media. You want, something, you want to reach people who read the newspaper? Put an ad in the newspaper. You want to reach people who watch the TV, show, the TV news shows? Have an ad on there. That basic connection is severed. So you can reach someone through Facebook without it having anything to do with any content. It just knows who you are, and it will target ads to you. Same thing with Google. That is such a profound change, and it, it basically breaks the ad model for local news. Um, and that was, I think, very difficult to recover from. Now, the one thing I think that they could have done, the local media could have done better, faster, and they're doing it now, they're scurrying around, is they, the ad business had been so successful that they underdeveloped the subscription model. They underdeveloped their relationship with the community. They underdeveloped providing good service and services to the community so that people would think it was worth paying $100 for, not $25. I mean, for, for a long, long time, the subscription price was way under the actual cost to make the newspaper because ads were so, so now they're, now they're in this moment of like, okay, the ads are going away. Now we have to quadruple our subscription price in order to make these numbers work. But we've done that at a time that we've cut our, reporting staff by two-thirds 
So they're not doing the kind of reporting that actually is serving people the same way. So at the very moment they had to be doing that, they've lost the tools editorially to make the connection with the community. If they had started 20 years ago at that, when they had more reporters, they would have been in a good position to make that pivot. I commend your efforts. Um, Thank you. Since so many papers, new, local newspapers, have disappeared, have people in those communities then fallen out of the habit of reading local news? So then you're placing them in the ones that still, you're placing reporters in the ones that still exist. But then for those communities where there are none, how are we uh, supporting them, feeding them? And then secondly, how do we educate our, uh, the public in what a good journalist does so that those who call it fake news can't, can no longer dismiss good journalism as fake news? Well, on the last point, I have a little fantasy that I entertain sometimes that I'm on a, 10 years from now, I'm on a supermarket checkout line and there's, there's uh, someone two people up at the register who's looking at some newspaper saying, damn fake news, they make all this stuff up. And then the person right behind them taps them on the shoulder and says, actually, I was a core member at Report for America. <laughs> and let me tell you how it actually worked. You know, we worked all the time to try to be accurate. I would wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat if I thought someone's name was misspelled, let alone making something up, which just does not happen for the most part. And that's actually how journalism is. And most of us did not get into it for the money. We got into it for public service, and that's what journalism is. And I would just be the third person back just watching this um, <laughs> in, my, in my little fantasy and just smiling quietly. Um, so I think, uh, honestly, I think the answer to how to rebuild trust is to have a ton of local reporters on the ground doing this. Uh, you know, I'm supportive of media literacy programs and things like that and public affairs campaigns talking about great work that journalists do. But honestly, I think there's no substitute for it. There need to be reporters in the community, living in the community, known by, the known by their neighbors, showing up at the, at the county board meetings, doing stories that are really of importance to people. And, and by the way, stories where the people themselves kind of know whether it's accurate or not. You've all had the experience of looking at an article in a local publication about something you actually know about firsthand and you know whether it's accurate or not. And unfortunately, when I talk to people about why, you know, why do you have a bad impression of the press, it's often that. It's like, oh, I was in the blah, 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 and I, there was a piece done about us, and it, you know, they got these things wrong. So that stuff really matters. So I think that that is really at the heart of what has to happen to rebuild trust. What was the first part of your question? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really hard question. It's like, what I, it, it, our model works really well if there's a struggling news organization that's doing the best work. But what if there's no news organization? What do you do in a case like that? Because we really are based on partnerships. So I think the honest answer is we haven't totally figured that out yet. But there's two things we are starting to see. One is that news organizations that are doing reasonably well in one community will start an adjacent publication if there's a... Uh, you know, if there's a gap in the county next door, they'll go there. So that's, that may be part of how, uh, of how this happens. The other is there may be new things that develop. 
I remember, I remember seeing when I was working at AmeriCorps, this was like a long time ago, in the, in the 90s, um, one of the things that happened in the early days of AmeriCorps was, the in the first couple of years of AmeriCorps, they placed people into existing programs, City Year and Teach for America, Habitat for Humanity, I think Big Brothers, those were like the biggest hosts for AmeriCorps members. But what started to happen is like there was a, a, a kind of almost a little ecosystem developed where people would say, people in communities would get together and form a new thing in order to get AmeriCorps members. And I think that can happen once we're kind of established and at a certain scale that in a community where there is no news organization and they're thinking about doing a new, we start to see that this time around. It's like, we're st we want to start a new thing and we want five Report for America people to help us staff it up. So that might happen. I'm hoping it does. I'm hoping it kind of stimulates a little bit of organic market activity like that in the, in the real news deserts. I really like your idea of Report for America. And um, Thank you. correct me if I'm wrong, uh, AmeriCorps started under George Herbert Walker Bush uh, under a thousand points of light and then transformed um, into AmeriCorps under the Clinton administration. Um, and so it showed bipartisan support and it is now a part of the federal budget. Um, we have a great AmeriCorps uh, city year Corps here in Cleveland. We were the eighth site, came as part of our bicentennial back in 96. Um, so my question for you is, have you looked for, are you thinking of getting federal funding or even state or local government Ooh, funding yeah. because of the importance of the First Amendment, of civic uh, engagement, and all of the things you're talking about? Have, are you looking for government support? Well, it's, I, my answer to this is, it always surprises people given that I was such a huge, am such a huge AmeriCorps booster. But the answer is no, um, which is, at least for now, I think it would be a bad idea for us to get government money. Uh, for one thing, a lot of what we have to do as journalists is hold government accountable. And so to hold government accountable at the same time you're relying on government for your money creates, creates problems. It's not impossible to figure this out, honestly. I think there are ways of doing this with firewalls. You can kind of see the way with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting has sort of done it with public radio. There's a, there are ways of doing it, and it's tempting. Um, but I think right now, uh, it's not our inclination to do that. And also, just what I say to you know, my progressive friends who, think, who keep saying, why don't you just, you know, let's try to get, you get so much more money. This would be so much bigger if you get government money. I say, OK, so you're comfortable with President Trump deciding who the uh, Report for America core members will be, and which news organizations get subsidized and which don't. I'm like, well, okay, maybe not. Let's wait, we'll wait, we'll wait on that. Um, so that's, you know, I, what I would love to try to figure out a way to do as a kind of in-between step, if we can figure it out, is get loan forgiveness for our people. You know, they all come out, well, not all, but a lot of them come out with a lot of student debt. That's one of the best things about AmeriCorps is a big chunk of loan forgiveness. Um, and I'd love to figure out a way of doing that maybe through the government, if we could, if we could figure out how to do that where we're getting the, the loan forgiveness without the other kind of um, strings attached to being a part of AmeriCorps, that might be a... Uh, hi, thanks. Um, you talked a little bit about the power, uh, relative power positions between government and media. Uh, and from time to time, I've ended up finally on like FOIA requests and things like that. Sometimes the information is good, sometimes it's not. Um, can you comment about uh, the instances 
are, are there more and more instances in which government can just stonewall, keep things out of the light, and then just win because they keep the information from the public and then the, the newspapers just kind of wear out and have to move on to Absolutely. new issues? It happens all the time, and, and, and public officials are aware that news organizations on the, are on the ropes and they, they, can out, they can just outweigh them. And the other thing is that in addition to just the kind of resource problem that you're talking about, there's also just a kind of ADD problem, which is you know, there was a phrase that I think Columbia Journalism Review um, wrote about the life of the modern reporter is a life on a hamster wheel. And it's like this just constant churn of having to write all the time and onto another story and onto another. And so it's really hard to stay focused on one thing and dog it. Like to do FOIA requests, you just have to keep on it over and over and over again and keep filing them and keep, right? It's not like you file it and then it happens usually. Um, so there's a level of persistence. And by the way, I didn't mention this. One of the things we've found in, in the Report for America programs is that the, the serv these service opportunities tend to work best when there's a beat, not a general assignment reporter. That's interesting. I mean, it's a better experience for the reporter because they can sink their teeth into something, but it also leads to better journalism because they develop an expertise and it gives them the ability to follow up on things. It's hard, much harder to do that when you're just general assignment reporter jumping from one thing new, to another. So we've kind of, I wouldn't say we've made it a hard requirement, but we lean very heavily in the direction now of favoring news organization applications that have beats, because it's going to be much easier to do that kind of accountability journalism. What do you see as the role of the schools of journalism? Are they mentors? Are they obsolete? Are they training better writers? What are they doing? That's a great question. Well. We feel like Report for America is helping to solve one of the problems that the journalism schools had, which is they're getting these great students, they're training them, and then putting them out into the market where there are no jobs. And people are coming out with $60,000 in debt and not able to get a job because the pipeline is broken. The, the normal way is that in the olden days you'd work your way up, you know, you'd go out to a small paper and then you'd move to a medium paper and eventually you'd get, you know, go to a national thing. That just doesn't exist anymore, at least on, a, on any kind of scale. So that creates this huge dilemma for journalism schools. Uh, we can give you a good education, but why bother going to a journalism school if you're not going to be able to get any work out of it? And so the journalism schools have been very excited about Report for America because it is a, you know, it, it creates these great opportunities for, for the students, for the alumni, for the graduates. So we work now very closely with them to make sure that their alumni are, are applying to us. You know, a good chunk of the people in, the first, in, the, in this current class of 60 had worked, you know, had gone to journalism school one place or another. And in the long run, um, they also have played a role. This is just like incipient right now, but as we get bigger and we start to have kind of concentrations in different regions, which I think is starting to happen naturally. By the way, we had 16 applica applications from 16 Ohio news organizations for 24 positions this next, this current cycle. It was the largest state in the country, at least in per capita. It might have been more from California, but it, something's going on in Ohio where there's a, you all have figured out that this is important and there's creativity happening and there's interesting things. So we have a huge um, 
applicant pool from Ohio. So ultimately, as we start to have clusters in certain regions, um, the hope would be that the partners, that, that the journalism schools to, to play a bigger and bigger role in training our people um, and working with the core members, not just you know sending us your good alumni, but continuing to work us, with us to make sure that these reporters continue to do great work. Thank you. Today at the City Club, we've heard from Steve Wallman. He's co-founder and president of Report for America. And to find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support City Club, please visit, visit us online at cityclub.org. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.